KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. You're listening to the Erev Shabbat program, Gimel Sivan, Erev Shabbat Kodesh Parashat Naso, first day of Shalshit Yemeag and in that sense, Erev Shavuot, and I'm your host, Jonathan Snowbell. Gimel Sivan is also the site of Shlomo Yosef ben Chaim Shmuel, who for a large portion of this year we have been dedicating the, shi- the Shurim, the program, to his memory. Being at this junction of being Erev Shabbat Parshat Naso, Parshat Naso, a respectable Parsha with lots to talk about, and on the other hand, it's the Erev Shabbat program right before Shavuot, not something that we can easily ignore, leaves the host, yours truly, in a dilemma. Do I speak about Parshat Naso? Do I speak about Shavuot? And of course, the answer should be, we have to try to combine the two. And not combine them physically by speaking seven minutes about Parshat Naso and another eight minutes on Shavuot, but actually combining the ideas into one larger idea that connects the two together. The topic that I want to talk about in Parshat Naso is Parshat Nazir. But from Parshat Nazir, I want to talk about a larger topic. Parshat Nazir, we all know, Nazir takes some extreme, makes some extreme decisions in his life not to cut his hair, not to drink wine or any grape products, and of course also not to come in contact with the dead. And as we know, there is a machloket in Chazal, in the sages, regarding our attitude towards the Nazir. Is what the Nazir doing praiseworthy? Or is the Nazir doing something which is not praiseworthy? He should not be not doing things that the Torah permits him to do. It is sufficient what the Torah has prohibited from, from, for you, from you. Why do you need to take extra prohibitions on yourself. Let's try to do the Torah. That's enough for us. Why do we need more prohibitions? As, again, as, as previously stated, the other opinion will say, look, the Nazir, you read the Parsha, the Torah is comparing the Nazir to a Kohen Gadol. Obviously, he's achieving uh, greater status. This is praiseworthy. Teaching this year in school, I taught Hilchot Deot of the Rambam. And everybody, everybody who's learned Hilchot Deot knows the, ge- this, the, the general premise of Hilchot Deot is that we're supposed to go in the middle path. We're not supposed to be extreme to any side. So we're not supposed to be people who get angry all the time. We're not supposed to be people who, as the Raman describes, are like dead people who don't react to anything. We're supposed to have some sort of balance in the middle. And likewise, every other quality, we shouldn't be giving away our money and we shouldn't be cheapskates. We should find the right way of handling our money. In that context, the Ramam talks about several values where he thinks perhaps you should be a little bit more extreme than just being in the middle. And then there's a whole discussion as to what does the Rama mean? Is the Rama giving us a tactic that this value is particularly difficult and therefore you should act in an extreme way? Well, let's backtrack one second. The Rama tells us, how does one get to the middle? Typically, a person before he begins reading Hilchot Deot is on one side of the middle. 
to the left of it or to the right of the middle. So if I'm to the left of the of the middle, says the Ramam, then I should act to the right. And that way, my action will bend my inclination at this point back to the middle. And I will find that happy middle point. But the Ramam says in certain... In certain values, this isn't true. And one example that he brings is modesty versus pride, that the Ramam says you should really lean towards the modest side. And so then one one can discuss what the Ramam means. Does he still want us to be in the middle, or does he really want us to be towards the, more towards the modest side? In any case, within this, the Ramam mentions the the famous saying of Chazal, Jealousy and desires and pride take a man out of this world. And so the Ramam says, based on this, maybe in order to avoid going near these three negative attributes of jealousy, pride, and honor, we should remove ourselves completely from the physical world. We should dress in disgusting clothing. It just sufficiently covers us. And we should eat minimally and just exactly what fills us up. And and, and bad food and everything. We shouldn't live in a house and we shouldn't get married. He describes essentially what would be monk-like behavior. And in fact, the Rambam negates this possibility. He says, no, this is the way that the the non-Jews live their lives, and we don't believe in this. And in fact, even the Nazir who only stops himself from drinking wine is considered a sinner, and the Ramam here takes one of the two positions that we previously mentioned about the Nazir. And by this mentioning of the Nazir, the Ramam got me thinking that perhaps, in fact, the Nazir is exactly this struggle of trying to find the middle path. Accidentally or not, the Ramam triggered, in my mind, the evaluation of Nazir that we see in our Parsha through the window of Hilchot What indeed is the Nazir trying to attain? If we take one position in Chazal, the order of the Parshiot we have Parashat Sota, which discusses a potentially adulterous woman, and and Chazal, and right after that we have Parashat Nazir, and Chazal, based on this juxtaposition, say, Kol Anyone who sees a an adulterous woman, a liberal translation there, should withhold himself from drinking wine, in other words, become an azir. What is the simple explanation? The simple explanation being that if you see that you're getting pulled over to the adulterous side, you are drawn to it, you are drawn to the sin, then you should pull yourself away to it, away from it by not drinking wine. And wine is something that will lead you toward making more mistakes, in a drunken state or a lightheaded state, you're bound to make more mistakes specifically within this framework, and therefore, stay away from wine. Correct yourself. 
Now, the question here can we can ask ourselves a question too: What is the ideal state, and what is the not so ideal state for dealing with this problem? Now, we'd like to say, and we'd like to believe, that every human being has the capacity from controlling themselves. Now, whether it's we're talking about adultery or other sins, whether more severe or less severe, we like to believe that the Torah tells us what to do, or the law tells us what to do, and we have the capacity to keep the Torah, and we have the capacity to keep the law. And that's where we should be. We should be in full control of ourselves, and we should be able to avoid <coughs> adultery without not drinking wine. We should drink wine and not commit adultery. But that's not always the case. Specifically, an adultery would like to think that most people are in control of themselves and can make the right decision. <clears throat> but as we go down the list and get through less severe sins and even more severe sins, people have difficulties and they have urges and the Yetzer Hara is often making things look very attractive to us and everybody in their own place and their own level of, of choice and it's hard for us and we have a choice but we sometimes start convincing ourselves and we need help. We need help. We need external help to help us stay away. And that external help sometimes is the wine. And sometimes the external help is a friend. And sometimes an external help is a safer. It's sometimes it's tzitzit. And sometimes it's being with the right group of people. And all of these are influences. Because perhaps without any of these that we described in a vacuum, where it was just our choice versus the sin, the sin might win over our choice to stay away from it. And that's why we need helpers. The Nazir... Is he a good person or is he doing something negative? Perhaps it is true that ideally, if we take this example that Rashi and Chazal bring of the connection between the Nazir and the Ishasota, it's clearly that it's ideal that a person should be able to stay away from adulterous relationships without any help, without any assistance. And if we go back to Hilchot De'ot, a person should be able to control themselves at any given moment and make the right decisions, be in the middle, get angry when they should get angry, not get angry when they shouldn't get angry, be modest, but don't be downtrodden, spend your money, but not too much, and don't be a miser. All of this should be in full control at any given moment. We're human beings. We have choice. So too the Nazir, and perhaps this is the opinion that views the Nazir as a sinner, the Nazir should be in full control. He doesn't need outside, external 
help to make him control himself. And if he does, there's something wrong with him. However, comes along the Nazir, Becholzot, and the Torah gives us this option and says, wait a second, it's okay to have helpers. You're having trouble dealing with this urge towards adultery? Stop drinking wine. Be a little bit less frivolous. Take actions that will keep you away from frivolity. You're having difficulty with where your friends are taking you and what you're doing with your friends in the evenings. Make yourself a program. Get yourself a job at night. Not so you can make any money. Just so you can have a a framework to be in that forces you to be there. So you won't go with the friends. And so on and so on. Endless number of examples that we could give ourselves. And what the Torah is saying here is that this is this is an avenue, and this is legitimate, and it's true. You should be able to control yourself on your own, and it is true that you should be in the middle, on the middle path, as the Ramam describes in Hilchot Deot. But sometimes you need help, and sometimes you need to take yourself to the other side of the middle in order to get yourself back in the middle. Sometimes we have to do actions that might not be the most advantageous actions, certainly we're not talking about this in terms of a safer or tzitzit, they're not necessarily the best decisions on a global level, on a lifelong level, but they're necessary right now. They're necessary right now to help us deal with our difficulty. In that sense, perhaps the Nazir is even greater because he's not ignoring his reality. He realizes his reality. He realizes he's having trouble. And instead of ignoring it, he does something unideal, perhaps, for a short amount of time, for whatever amount of time is necessary, and gets himself into... into, He gets himself to be controlled. He learns to control, control himself. And in that sense... Perhaps the Nazir is remarkable because he realizes the situation, he realizes his failings, and he goes out and seeks help. And in that sense, the Nazir is the great man because the great man is not the perfect man. The great man is the man who understands his failings and helps himself overcome his failings. Is the Nazir ideal? In an ideal world, perhaps not, because perhaps he should not sin without any help. But is the Nazir the ideal man? Indeed he is. He knows his failings, and he is able to help himself overcome his failings. And we'll take a short break, and we'll return after Rav Tavori. This week, when Zion Iyar... When Zion Sivan is the yard site of Rav Zelig Ruven Bengis, known as the Rav of the Eda Haredis of Yerushalayim. Rav Zelig Ruven was born near Vilna in Lithuania in 1864. His parents were wealthy 
but were also known as people who were involved in Torah learning. His family, especially his mother's side, were known as Tamini Chachamim for many generations, but the fact that his parents were wealthy enabled him to, to lead his life in a way that he felt more appropriate, which we will soon see. At early childhood, he was known as an Ilui. There's a story told about him that when he was 10 years old, he came to a Shi'ur and he quoted Rashi by heart and the people were amazed by his erudition. He went to the yeshiva in Valazhin and learned by the Nitziv. Reb Chaim was also in the yeshiva at that time. It seems that Reb Zalig Ruvain was more close to the Nitziv and thought that the Derech Halimud, the approach to Torah that he had, was based on the uh, Nitziv rather than Reb Chaim. At the time in, when he was learning, he was a, an older Chavruta of Rabbi Sezaman Meltzer, the author of the Evan Ha'azel, became the, who became later the Rosh Hashiva of Eitzchayim. And Rabbi Sezaman actually outlived Rabbi Zali Guvin by a few years, and he was masked him at the time when Rabbi Bengis was Nifter. He was so well known that he received a number of smichos, a number of letters from Gedolim as Rabbi Yitzhak Hanan, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, and others. When he, after he was married and he decided to go into Rabbanus, he did not need to go to a big town where there would be a better Parnassa because he wanted to go to a small town where he felt he would be able to develop himself in learning more and spend more time in learning. He went to a small village, a small town called Bradki, and he was there for 17 years. While he was there, he obviously sat ala Torah v'alavoda. He obviously spent a lot of time learning. And he began publishing his set of svarim called Lifla Goes Through Uvein. These svarim are rather unusual in the fact that they are not based on straight mesechtos or on the Rambam, as is the custom of many Rashi Yeshiva, of many Rabbanim. Rather, it was a collection of Hadranim, the kind of a talk that's given when you finish a siyum, and sometimes it involves a lot of a type of intellectual casuistry where you combine the end of one mesechta to the beginning of a new mesechta, and it's generally uh, different isolated topics that are put together rather ingeniously. He said that he published his farim that way, because he felt that standard type of Svarim were so rampant that another Sefer people wouldn't look at. Because this was unusual, perhaps people would use it more. In fact, when a Rav, a Rosh Hashiva, has to make a Hadron, sometimes he himself has to make the Hadron, and very often he would look for Sifre Hadronim, look for certain volumes that were written in that style in order to see, to get some ideas of what to say. 
There are a few other svarim like this of uh, the Hadron variety. Uh, Rabbi Mirsky, um, the rabbi of uh, Borough Park, in, when I was growing up, also pro- published a sefer uh, of Hadronim, Rabbi Nachum Rabinovich, Sheibadel Lechaim Tovim, the Rosh Hashiva of Maladumim, has such a sefer, and, and there are many svarim like this. However, Lifthagas Ruvain was the main sefer that Rav Bengis wrote, and number of volumes, and most of them dealt with these topics of Hadronim on Mishnayis and Gemaris. After being in Bratki for 17 years, he went to a, a, another town called Kalaviria, and he was there for 25 years or so. So he was a Rav in small towns for a very long time. In 1932, there was a discussion of offering him a position in Eretz Israel. At first, it seems that Rav Bengis was reluctant to take a position like that. It has been suggested that the reason he did not want to take this position, although it was known that he was a great lover of Eretz Israel, and wanted to come on Aliyah, he felt this particular position would put him in conflict with Rav Kook, who was the chief rabbi of Eretz Yisrael. Rav Bengis had known Rav Kook from his days in Palazhin. I will show later a story that reflects the mutual respect between Rav Bengis and Rav Kook. And he did not want to take a position where he felt there would be any sort of a conflict with Rav Kook. A few years later, in 1936, he was offered the position of being the Rav of the Eid HaRedis in Yerushalayim. This already was a year after Rav Kook passed away. Then he did accept the position and he arrived in Eretz Israel in 1937, just before Yom Kippur. In ten years later or so, when Rav Dushinsky, who was the Rav Av Bezdin of Yerushalayim, passed away, so it was Rav Bengis who was chosen to replace him as the Rav. At the same time, he was also the Rosh Yeshiva of a Yeshiva called Oel Moshe. And there is a Yeshiva today, in not far from the Shuk of Yerushalayim, which has on it the name of Rav Ruven Bengis that may be the continuation of that yeshiva which he started many years ago. Now, in my world, when you say the Eid HaKaredis, it sounds people who are really opposed to religious Zionism and are very separatist. It seems that Rav Bengis, although he was the Rav of the Eid HaKaredis, was a person who tried to somehow mediate between the two groups. He was instrumental in calming down any sort of arguments, any sort of of machlokas, and he tried very hard to make sure that the extremists, the Naturakarta, did not create, foment any tremendous arguments in Yerushalayim. The main 
fame of of Bengis is in his learning and in his mahasmada. He was a tremendous masmid. I have a friend who was a ram in Yeshivat Midrashiyat Noam Padishana, where I taught for many years, for a few years. Rav Yosef Kravitz, who was Zichrona Levracha, was an older ram in that yeshiva. And he told me that he was invited to the siyum of Rav Bengis. So at first I didn't understand. He was invited to a siyum. Many people were invited to a siyum. He said to me, this was called the siyum Hagadol. I said, what did you mean by the siyum Hagadol? He finished Shas. All right. I've already heard of many He told me this was announced by Rabengis. This is the hundredth time he had finished Shas. He had a custom of going over the entire Shas every 11 months. In 11 months, he finished Shas. But they say that once he made another Siyam HaShas after six months. And they asked him, how could it be? He always finishes 11 months. This is almost twice as fast. And he answered that lately he had been invited to many weddings. I assume as being the Rav of the Ada, the big Rav in Yerushalayim, he was invited to many Simchas. And he said very often the Simchas become delayed. The Chasim doesn't start on time. Whatever it is, is always delayed. So he said he used to take that opportunity to go over the Shas. Since he had more time at these simchas, he finished the shas more quickly. He said shas by heart. This to me is reminiscent of, of another gadol that I had the privilege of meeting, Rav Hirschbrunk of Montreal, who just used to recite shas almost uh, all the time. He knew it so well by heart that, you know, he was walking the street, he would re- recite a homosechta in, in a few minutes. It was a remarkable thing to watch. Rabbi Zalman was the Maspid of Rav Bengis. And at one point, apparently, Rav Bengis bemoaned the fate of his Svarim to Rav Zalman. He had told him that Rav Zalman's Svarim, the Evan Ha'azel, which is based on the Rambam in a consecutive order, of the various svarim, not all the svarim, but a certain svarim of the Rambam, was a sefer that was well used in yeshiva. But the Liflagos Ruvain somehow did not make it into the yeshiva world, because in the yeshiva world they learned svarim that are either based on shas as you go along, shiurim on the mesechtas you're learning, or on svarim in the Rambam. A sefer of Hadranim is not what's usually used in a yeshiva. And although everybody recognized the lambdas, the godless of Rav, of Rav Bengis, the derech of Reb Chaim seems to have been much more prevalent in the yeshiva world than the approach that he took based on the derech of the Nitziv. So, it is true that the Liflagos Reuven is a sefer that many, many Rabbanim and Gedolim spoke about the greatness, the bikiyas, the iyun of those svarim, nevertheless, they did not 
take a essential role in the average, even the average Talmud Chacham's library, and are not as well used as other Svarim, which are based on either Shas or on the Rambam. Rav Bengis was Nifter in 1953 in Zion Sivan. As I mentioned before, Rabbi Zalman was Maspid, and he was buried in a section that was then designated as Chelkas HaRabbanim of Haramanuchas. A special section for big Rabbanim were buried together. Some of the people that are buried today in that Chelkas Rabbanim include <coughs> Rabbi Zalman, Revelvel Biskarov, Reb Aaron Cutler, Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, and others. Now, I heard a story many years ago that although I do not know the source for the story, it remains a story in my mind that showed the relationship between Rav Cook and Rav Bengis. In a sense, the story is about Rav Cook but it shows his respect for Rabbenkis. A person came from America to Yerushalayim to visit Rav Kook near the end of his life and brought Rav Kook a present. He went into the office of Rav Kook and came out with a very happy look on his face. People asked him what happened and he said he brought a present for Rav Kook. So when they went to Rav Kook, they saw that he had a new watch that this person from America had given him. But it was known that Rav Kook did not accept gifts. And they asked the question, why did you accept the gift? So the person in question explained that it wasn't really a gift, it was a payment for a lesson that he had learned from Rav Kook. It seems that years before, when Rav Kook was perhaps more famous and in certain circles was considered a major guttle, Rabengis was less n- known. He was a rough in a small town. And in certain circles, obviously, there was a difference between the people that would respect and revere Rav Cook and those that were in the world of Rav Reuven Bengis. So apparently somebody insulted Rav Bengis. Rav Cook thereupon slapped him in the face. Rav Cook said... A young Talmud Chacham, I don't know exactly the ages, it seems that Rav Kook actually was the same, born almost the same year as Rav Bengis. But nevertheless, it seems Rav Kook was better known, and he said someone who insults a young Talmud Chacham has no place in my world. The person was so embarrassed by this slap that he left town, became, went to work in another town, became very wealthy, and years later he came to Rav Kook and said, you taught me such a lesson in Kavod Torah, in Kavod for this particular case, Kavod for Rav Bengis, that I simply had to pay you for the Sheyur, and that's why Rav Kook accepted the gift or a payment, as it were. Rav Bengis's family is also well known. I knew, I still have met his grandson, Rav Vitzik of Baltimore, and that family evolved in various directions, but the Tarragon family of um, today, some of them are in New York, some of them are in California, some of them are in Gush Etzion, 
some, some of the Tarragon family is uh, related to Rabengus, the grandchildren of, great-great-great-grandchildren of Rabengus. In fact, in the yeshiva, we have Rav Moshe Tarakin, and, of course, the Rav Zelig Ruven Tarakin, the Eram in Yeshivat HaKotel, is not only a descendant, but carries the name of Rav Zelig Ruven Bengis. So we see that his Lumdis, his family, carries on. As I said, he was Nifter in Zion Sivan in 1953. His Svarim live behind him, his family also continues the drachim of learning Torah that he so propagated. You've been listening to Rav Tavori, Rav Yaman Tavori, the outside of Rav Ruven Bengus, which falls this week. And this is Ezra Beck wishing you all Shabbat Shalom and Chag Sameach, Chag Shavuot, which is right around the corner. Should be Zoha to we we live we experience Matan Torah Kabbalata Torah we should uh, we invest and strengthen once again our own personal commitment to Tomut Torah for which KMTT is a small but I hope important part Shabbat Shalom Chag Sameach and we'll be back next week after Chag HaShavuot with our regular programming. Kol Tov. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. But I did promise a connection to Shavuot. Shavuot, Chag Matan Torah, our choices and decisions are one of the most important things when we come to Torah. Naseh Nishma. The ability and the significance of Matan Torah is our ability to decide to take the correct action to implement the Torah. Whether that's fulfilling mitzvot, whether it's learning Torah, whether it's fulfilling the greater values of the Torah in all aspects of our lives. These are about decisions and choices that we make in the right direction. And when we make those choices in the right direction, we make Matan Torah a significant event in our lives. And we have to know that it's not easy, and sometimes we need to force ourselves. He lifted a mountain over their head and threatened them, if you don't accept the Torah, Sham Sometimes, we need a gun at our heads. Sometimes we need to feel forced into doing the right thing because we're human beings and as human beings we have urges. And all of, all of those urges should be allowed to roam around freely and we have to control ourselves. And urges can be as bad as an urge to be adulterous to an urge not to learn Torah when we should be learning Torah. And all of those urges have to be controlled. And we're not always able to make the right decision on our own. 
and we're allowed to get help. We're allowed to help ourselves, like the Nazir, not drinking wine to avoid adultery. And we're allowed to make a chavruta at an inconvenient time with a person that we know will never disappoint them and will always go to learn with them because we need to learn and we have to force ourselves to learn. The Torah gives us a choice and we're expected to make the right choice but the Torah understands who we are and as human beings we need to know our weaknesses and our strengths more importantly our weaknesses to help ourselves work with our weaknesses and make the right decisions despite our weaknesses May we have the ability to hear Matan Torah and Chag Shavuot, accept the Torah in a true way, which means accepting our failures and learning to overcome our failures in order to keep the Torah in the best way possible. Shabbat Shalom and Chag Sameach.